Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing good. Hey, we have a new patron. Our newest patron on patreon.com slash Podcast is Frank Costello. That's, it sounds like such a fancy name. It's the name of the head of the Genovese crime family in the 1940s, also known as the Prime Minister of the Underworld. What? It's also the name of Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed, who is also a gangster, but not related to the real gangster. It might also be this person's real name, which, you know, but... Sounds pretty badass, then. <laughs> well... <laughs> so, yeah, either someone who happens to be named Frank Costello is supporting us on Patreon, which, by the way, thank you, Frank, or our Patreon has become some sort of elaborate money laundering scheme. Don't get the feds on us. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. You can join Frank and others like him by going to patreon.com slash podcast, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron of the night. So check it out. So what are we watching tonight, Ben? Today we're watching Bowery at Midnight, Sarah. Okay. Uh, It's from 1942, and this is the fifth of the Monogram 9 that Bela Lugosi made for producer Sam Katzman at Poverty Row Studio Monogram. And this has the reputation of being one of the most bizarre of the Monogram 9. You said that about Corpse Vanishes. I might have said that Corpse Vanishes was the most bizarre. This one's just one of the most bizarre, you know. So from a range of bizarre to most bizarre? It's like... I imagine, like, monogram, you know, your starting yeah. point is bizarre. Oh, absolutely. So. At the end of our last episode, uh, we had some... You had some questions about, like, what the Bowery in the title meant. And yes. we talked about it a little bit at that end point of the last episode, but I thought I'd just go into it again here for the sake of any listeners who... Like, um... Because this is the time to do it. Yeah, well, just for the sake of listeners who don't, like, know everything about New York City, which I feel is, like, a thing New York City just assumes other people do all the time. That's where all the superheroes are, so of course. Mm -hmm. So the Bowery is a street and neighborhood in South Manhattan. Uh, It's north of Chinatown, west of the East Village, and east of Little Italy. Where is it in relation to Hell's Kitchen? It would be south east of Hell's Kitchen. Okay. Yeah. Um, So Daredevil isn't around. No. But I can tie it to a Marvel character later. So um, in the 1940s, when this film was made, it was a heavily poverty-stricken area. Mm. Uh, It was notorious for its high population of alcoholics and homeless people uh, who were called derelicts or Bowery bums. So that's why it has, like, some cultural significance. Like, why you can title a movie after it and people wouldn't just be like, what? Like, sure, sure. Because it was quite it's, notorious. It sparked these types of, of names. and Yeah, it, it, it's sort of, you know, like saying, like, Skid Row or something. It's, it, was, it has some um, Is notoriety. Is Skid Row a real place? Yes. Huh. But I promised I'd tie it to a Marvel character, so I'll just say that um, Submariner, after World War II, uh, Namor, the Prince of Atlantis... Uh, he lost his memory, and he became a bum, and Johnny Storm later found him in the Bowery. 
because he was a bum, and that's where bums are. Okay. That was in, like, Fantastic Four number four, I think. Anyways, so uh, Bowery at Midnight is brought to us by Wallace Fox, who was the director of Corpse Vanishes. And the Excellent. Sc- yes, and the script is by Corpse Vanishes writer Gerald Schnitzer. Excellent. I loved Corpse Vanishes. It was so fun. <laughs> and the script for Bowery at Midnight actually started off as a crime movie before Sam Katzman decided it would uh, make more money if they turned it into a horror movie. Oh, how the times have changed. <laughs> so this is sort of a unique hybrid story here. Now, few of the cast in Bowery at Midnight, um, besides Bella Lugosi, are especially notable. Okay. Um, they basically fall into the category of, like, this person appeared in a lot of B-movies around this time, but never gained much of a career after this kind of story. Um, this is Lugosi's next movie right after Night Monster. Aficionados of trash cinema might recognize Dave O'Brien in this movie in a minor role. Uh, he's best known for his role in 1936's Reefer Madness. <laughs> uh, and we also uh, last saw him in The Devil Bat. Right, right. So the most interesting person in the cast, in terms of their life story... Besides is, Bella Lugosi. Right. Is um, the story of actor Tom Neal who appears in this film in a supporting role as, like, a like mob hitman type. So before I go into his story, I'm just going to say that it is not pleasant mm. and uh, contains scenes of violence, coarse language, and mature subject matter, and that viewer discretion is advised. And uh, if you don't feel like hearing about it, you can skip ahead, like, five minutes, listener. So, Tom Neal was born in Illinois in 1914. He attended Northwestern University, where he majored in mathematics. He also was on the university's um, boxing team and in the drama club. Uh, He dropped out after a year uh, in order to become a boxer. He boxed for two years, had a pretty good, like, win-loss record. Uh, And then he began appearing in summer stock acting performances... What, what's Summerstock? Is that like Woodstock? No. Uh, that's like plays in the summer that are like repertory theater, where it's like no new plays. It's not like, oh, the, the newest play from W. Somerset Mom is coming out in this Summerstock company. It's like, oh, hey, here's... Like Shakespeare in the Park? Yeah, Shakespeare in the Park's a good example of okay, Summerstock. Okay. Or like, if you go to see like, you know, Rent at, like, some community theater, you know, or something. Like, that's summer stock. Okay. Um, so he started doing those kind of performances. Um, by 1935, he was on Broadway, and by 1938, he was in film. So he, you know, did pretty good for himself, honestly. Uh, he typically played tough guys in low-budget B-movies, but occasionally he would win critical acclaim, such as for his role in the 1945 film noir Detour, which was directed by Edgar G. Ulmer who directed the 1934 Black Cat. Right. So that's sort of Neil's career. Where he becomes very interesting is his personal life. So his first marriage uh, to performer Vicki Lane lasted four years before ending in divorce, uh, as she cited mental and physical cruelty on Neil's part. In the early 50s, Neil began dating actress Barbara Payton, uh, but she left Neil for actor Franchot Tone, in 1951, Neil and Tone got into a fistfight over Peyton in her front yard, with Neil beating Tone so severely he required hospitalization. 
Once Tone got over his injuries, Peyton married him, but she left him after two months to go back to Neil. So, Tone divorced her for adultery. Uh, the fight between Neil and Tone made headlines, so both Neil and Peyton were blacklisted in Hollywood for their bad behavior. They attempted to revitalize their careers by starring in a touring stage version of The Postman Always Rings Twice, but they got poor reviews, so when the play ended, they broke up. Finally. Neil then married Patricia Fenton in 1956, but she died of cancer the next year. Neil then moved to Palm Springs and became a gardener, uh, because his career as an actor was essentially over. He married a receptionist named Gail Bennett in 1961. They separated when Neil began to suspect Bennett of sleeping with other men. And in 1965, police found Bennett dead in her home of a gunshot wound to the head. Uh, no one else was home. However, Neil was arrested, given that, like, in those sorts of situations, you know, he's the husband and they're separated, so number one suspect kind of deal. His story was that the gun went off accidentally when the two of them were having, like, a heated argument. Uh, he was convicted of manslaughter, served six years out of a 15-year sentence, and then died of heart failure a year after his release on parole. Okay. That's quite the story. Yes. Uh, yeah, so he plays like a like a mob hitman in this movie. Like, a, that's who he is. He's just some tough guy. <laughs> Fits with his life. I guess. So Bowery at Midnight was released on October 30th. 1942. Break by Halloween. Yep, day before. The LA Times called it, quote, maybe the most far-fetched of Bela Lugosi's films, unquote. <laughs> excuse me? Uh, excuse <laughs> me? Have they seen any of the other films, Ben? Have they Listen, seen have Devil you... Bat? Have they seen Corpse Vanishes? Have you seen Bowery at Midnight? No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> they did say that it was good for youngsters due to its outlandish nature, but not really for anyone else. Good for youngsters. Yeah, essentially they were trying to say that, like, if you are any older than a child, uh, you probably shouldn't watch this movie because it's real silly and dumb. Oh, See, I thought maybe it was like, you know, you can go to watch this and you can make out the entire time and not miss anything. No, not youngsters as in teens. Youngsters as in, like, chillin', you know? Chillin'. Uh, surprising no one, it is in the public domain. Alright. So if it's in the public domain, that means it's on our YouTube playlist, which you can find at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Check it out there, and you can watch along. In the meantime, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss... Bowery at Midnight from 1942, directed by Wallace Fox. See you on the other side, everybody. Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is a hurricane heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week, we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it, whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. 
Welcome back to Scream Scene, everyone. We just finished watching Bowery at Midnight from 1942, directed by Wallace Fox. Um, Ben? <laughs> you and I had uh, very different reactions to this movie, I think. Yes. Um, I don't think it was good. No. But you found it boring. Like, you were yawning through this movie. Yeah. And I would not describe this movie as boring boring. Listen, the plot itself is bonkers, and if you've read the synopsis, you'd be like, how would something like this be boring? Like, there's just so much. And it's like, yeah, man, there's no, like, tension or excitement, too many characters. It's boring. I mean, it's not well directed. Correct. Like, you could direct this in a more exciting way if um you had like a pulse because <laughs> um, this and like the film must have employed like all the actors signed to monogram there's just oh. so many people oh yeah like i mean that's bizarrely common in um like cheap low budget movies i'm starting to notice like that the lower the budget the more people are in them which seems counterintuitive but i think it's from like writers who don't know how to fill like, time or, like, efficiently plot things, right? Like, in a good story, you have, like, Hansel and Gretel and the witch. And that's, like, all your characters. And in, like, a low-budget movie, you have, like, the witch's cousin's nephew's secretary who answers the phone in one scene. Yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I... I don't know if I could say I enjoyed this. That doesn't 100% feel right. But I was fascinated by this every step of the way. Sure. But let's give our listeners that plot synopsis. And, you know, they can decide... For themselves? <laughs> right. Escaped convict Fingers is on the run, and he heads to New York City's Bowery, specifically the friendly mission Soup Kitchen, run by Carl Wagner, Bella Lugosi, who reveals himself as the head of a crime gang who robs jewelry stores. Fingers joins on such a job with fellow goon Stratton and Wagner when he's double-crossed and shot and left in the jewelry store. A few of these kinds of cases of jewelry store thefts with murder on the side have happened in the past that has Sergeant Crawford on the case, who is later promoted to Detective Crawford. Meanwhile, soup kitchen worker and nurse Judy... Uh, who is unaware of her boss's crime activities, is told by her rich fiancé to stop this social work and yeah, just get married. He's tired of his uh, fiancé being an SJW. Meanwhile, this rich fiancé, whose name is Richard, because he's rich, is at university in his psychology class with Professor Brenner, who turns out is Bella Lugosi, who is... It's not a fight club situation, it's more double-life situation. And Richard wants to write a term paper on the uh, less privileged. So to learn more about the underprivileged, Richard disguises himself as a homeless man and goes to Judy's soup kitchen. Upon recognizing Brenner as Wagner, Lugosi brings Richard into the secret passages of the soup kitchen and has him killed. By this point, Stratton, previous goon, has also been double-crossed, and we have Frankie Miller as the latest goon following Lugosi's orders. Since Richard is missing, Judy 
starts searching around because the last place he was seen alive was the soup kitchen and she discovers dead bodies just as the cops bust in the door to catch Frankie Mills and Brenner. Now the one person who I have not mentioned up to this point because it is not relevant is Doc Brooks who is a mad scientist who also works at the soup kitchen and has been bringing these dead goons and people back to life in the basement and keeping them in another secret area and is bringing these goons back to life and keeping them locked up and um, he leads Brenner slash Regner, Lugosi, down there, and then they promptly kill him as the cops come in, as if they're supposed to be zombies. But by the end, Judy and Richard are getting married, and Richard's fine, so clearly they aren't zombies, and they just committed manslaughter. The end. I, you can sense how much disdain you have in this mo- for this movie, like, in your plot summary. It's like if someone was like, what's Star Wars about? And it's like, I don't know, there's this chick and she's on the run from these guys and they catch her, but then these other jerks rescue her. It's not really important, but they blow up a thing at the end. <laughs> like, I love that you said that like Doc isn't relevant when probably from our perspective, he's the only relevant thing. Because <laughs> like... Well, here's the thing. Doc Brooks is maybe the only horror element in this, uh, in the sense that horror and mad scientist have kind of been conjoined. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he's not relevant. Like he's a little bit of flavor here and there, um, with his like evil laughter and like strolling around, creeping around, all these sorts of things. Um, but like the only thing that's interesting about this movie, and this is it to me, is it was marketed as a horror movie. It's like, we were told it was a horror movie, that's why we were covering it as a horror movie. Ben and I, I think, can agree that this is not horror. No. No, it's not horror, or no, we no. can't agree? <laughs> no, it's not horror. Okay, thank you. Um, the only horror elements come from Doc Brooks, who really only exists so people don't actually die. So therefore, the horror elements are in here only so this movie can get past the code. Well, except that you can kill bad people as much as you want in the code. Like, the code doesn't say no one's allowed to die. The code just says, in fact, the code doesn't even say good people aren't allowed to die. What the code says is if you're bad, you have to die. Okay, so then the horror elements only exist in this movie so we can have a happy ending at the end. Sure. That's the only partially interesting, semi-interesting, like, thing about this movie to me. Otherwise, I don't know, there was just... Thinking about this compared to Corpse Vanishes, which was wild and I love it so much, is there was something about Corpse Vanishes that is engaging. Maybe because it starts off with like the wedding and the bride going like, I did, blah, and dying like immediately. And so immediately you have the hook and you have a bit of like a fast talking reporter kind of thing. So that it felt a bit more engaging versus this where just like the shoving way too many characters in here. Um, we're meandering around whatever the heck this plot was. Yeah, it's just too much for me. But you really enjoyed it, so why don't you tell me what you did enjoy? What what part of it engaged you? Well, so, yeah, I feel like we watched different movies. I, I, I see what you're talking about, like, in, in some degree, because, like, the movie isn't good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's badly written, but I don't think it's any worse written than Corpse Vanishes, and I don't think it's any like, less or more crazy. That was what engaged me about this movie, was seeing what completely bonkers thing it was going to do next. Just trying to think, like, what was the writer thinking at this time? Because you're totally right that it has far too many characters, to the point where, like, it 
starts to realize that it doesn't know what to do with them and just starts killing them because it's not really quite sure what else to do. It's it's like the least efficient use of characters I've ever seen. But I don't agree with a lot of your conclusions about like these elements. I think we agree that like this we agree on like the same things are in this movie, but I think we came to different conclusions about them. Um and I don't really see like you tried to kind of defend like here's why I like corpse vanishes over this. I don't really see the difference. Like this movie starts with like a jailbreak and like a dude on the run. So I don't really see how like that's any more or less engaging than like a bride dying. This movie also has a female protagonist, uh, Judy. I think if there's a central difference, it's that the fact, the thing I talked about earlier in the intro about how this was like a crime movie that had like a horror element tacked into it is glaringly obvious. Yeah. Um, whereas Corpse Vanishes very clearly has like a much more traditional horror setup in that it's got like an old dark house and like a bunch of weird servants and and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And people spending the night while like thunder happens. Yeah. Um but what's interesting is like so you're right in that like Doc is the only horror thing plot-wise. I don't really think he's only in here to give us a happy ending because they didn't need to bring Richard back when like Detective Crawford's right there. Like that's that's what I mean when I say like this movie fascinates me because I'm just sitting here trying to think why for so much of it. That's what's engaging me almost. It's like it's engaging my writer brain to just think like, why did you make these decisions? But I think he's in here just because Sam Katzman decided one day you should throw some horror stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's much more what's going on. But what's interesting is seeing the other horror tropes that show up in here regardless. Like, Doc is is he looks like Riff Raff from fucking like Rocky Horror Picture Show and laughs like Dwight Fry. Sure. And then like I feel like like I I get why you did this for the sake of the plot summary, but like you simplified a lot of things, which is smart, right, for doing a plot summary. But I think that doesn't get across like the pure sense of just what the fuck that you get watching this movie. Like Bella Lugosi's character just starting with that. I don't really know what the fuck his deal was. Like, the thing about the movie is it doesn't... It not only has all these millions of characters, but it doesn't do really anything to explain what's going on. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to piece it together yourself because it'll cut to different groups of characters without explaining how they're in any way related. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, the whole thing about Lugosi being both Carl Wagner, the guy who runs this soup kitchen and also a crime empire, and... Professor Brenner, like, in a normal movie, I feel like what would happen is, you know, we'd see Carl Wagner. He's a nice guy. He runs this soup kitchen. But actually, on the side, he's like an evil criminal. What a twist. But then we follow him home to his loving wife, and it turns out he's also actually a psychology professor in the suburbs. What a twist. But it doesn't really do that. It shows us that Carl, soup kitchen guy, is Carl crime guy, then a bunch of other stuff happens, and then we just cut to Professor Brenner as if he was a completely separate character who just happened to also be played by Bella Lugosi. Yeah. And, like, the really wild thing is that the cast list shows up at the start of the movie, like, is common for movies in the 40s, and shows them as, like, two different roles that Bella Lugosi is playing. It's not like, you know, in a Marvel movie or a Batman movie or whatever where it's, like, Bruce Wayne slash Batman played by Christian Bale. It's like, no, it's this role 
and this role. So, like, it's it's yeah. like, wait, was the idea that they're the same dude supposed to be... A surprise? A surprise? Because you know they're both played by Bella Lugosi. Like, it's so baffling to me, the structure of this movie and the decisions it makes, because you don't get a sense that Judy's important. Forever. She just seems to be like, oh, she's the nurse who works at the soup kitchen. She's not important. Because, like, you're following fingers on, like, meeting Lugosi and going on this job. And then, okay, he shoots fingers. And you're like, okay, so Lugosi's who we're following. Him and Stratton. And they are doing... Crimes. Crimes. And Doc, the thing about Doc is, like, he's at this soup kitchen because, like, everything about Doc is something that you have to pick together in your own head. There's just, like, clues. Like, he's down on his luck in a soup kitchen. He's also, like, a drug addict. I get the feeling that he works there. Right. He's he's also a drug addict. He keeps sending people, like, he's a, but he is actually a doctor. Because he can write his own prescriptions for, like, whatever it is that he's addicted to and send people to the drugstore and get it for him. Um, so, like, he's addicted to morphine or something, uh, which I guess explains why he's not, like, practicing. But, like, yeah, he just has the ability to make zombies, like, just as a as a thing. Yeah. Like, and that's just a totally weird out-of-nowhere thing. Like, they kill Fingers, and Doc t- is talking to Stratton. He's like, why didn't you bring the body back? Like... Wagner knows I I want the bodies and it's like Wagner's whole situation where it's like you have the soup kitchen and then a secret door behind his office which is already locked to his secret office which then has another secret door down into like the basement where his crime cronies hang out which then has another secret door to a room where he keeps all the dead bodies of his ex-partners that he kills because his whole deal is he hires someone for like a specific job. And then when he doesn't need them anymore, kills them like immediately. And when he hires Frankie Mills, he shows them the room of dead people and is like, these are all my dead former partners. Like, why would you show someone that? And And they're labeled. They're labeled. They have headstones. Like I get that you have all the bodies in like a secret hidden room so that like, oh, the cops will never find it, whatever. But then if they do, they know exactly who these people are. <laughs> like, because you put headstones. But it's okay because none of them are actually dead because they're actually in another secret door under the graveyard that's in the basement being kept alive by the dock somehow. We never actually see a scene where no. he brings a dude back to life. There's just, like, at one point somebody dies and Doc is just like, oh, well, I'm going to save him and pulls out, like, a black, like a little doctor's black bag and brings it over to the body and then we fade to black and the next thing we know he has, like, a collection of these dudes in the basement. And then, yeah, he throws Legosi to them at the end and they, like, eat him while the cops are just standing there watching being like, well... That takes care of Wagner. Yeah, as if, like, death by zombie horde is, like, a typical, like, ah, that's like an... Execution tactic. Or, like, oh, an act of God. Like, as if you were, like, chasing a criminal and he happened to crash his car. And it's like, well, you know, these things happen. Like, (laughs) what? Like, they're so casual to it. And, like, yeah, you're totally right that Richard then, like... Is fine. Is fine. Like, he, he shows no signs of anything. And the movie just ends, like... Oh yeah, he's going to get married to uh, uh, Judy. Judy, and it's, everything's going to be okay. But like, your conclusion from that is like, I guess Doc isn't making zombies? Whereas I was sitting there going, wait, so the movie just ends with her marrying a zombie? What? <laughs> <laughs> That's necrophilia. I don't yeah. think you can put that in a movie. Like, because the movie is so unclear. It doesn't 
tell you anything. You're just sitting there having to put the pieces together yourself. And and that would have been like a completely different kind of movie for like Honey, I married an axe murderer. Right. Honey, I married a zombie. And like coming back to Lugosi's character. So at there are points in the movie where you're like, "Oh, I I understand." Like so Professor Brenner's this psychology professor. And there's a point in the movie where he's like telling so Richard's like one of his students, right? Yeah. And this he's is rich. He can go to college. The 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 impression <laughs> I I'm going to talk he about He has a Rich- family yacht. Yeah, I'll talk about Richard in a second, but the impression I got from Richard is that he was taking psychology just because like he's never going to have to work ever because he's a rich playboy, but he should have a university degree because like that shows he's, you know, educated. So he's just taking it in psychology because like who cares? Basically, <laughs> right? Like it's just something to have his degree in. But this is how they end up like finding Richard and connecting the disappearance of Richard to the soup kitchen is that his psychology professor is Brenner, and then they figure out that Brenner is Wagner, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, Lugosi tells Richard, like, he's running the soup kitchen as, like, a research project. Yeah, and his wife talks about, you know, he's how's your book? He's writing a new book? book. Yeah, as if, like, that's why he's doing it. That doesn't really explain why he's also running a crime empire out of it. Because he's crazy. Sure, yes. But then there's the scene where, like, he's giving, like, the jewels that he's stolen and stuff to his wife. So you think, like, okay, in his mind, this is all, like, a way to, like, give his wife things because, like, obviously, like, university professor isn't paying very well or whatever. But then, when the cops show up to question his wife and his wife, like, suddenly is putting all the pieces together and is like, oh, my God, you're right, my husband is doing all these things. I'll come down to the station and talk to you. He kills her. Yeah. And then she's dead. And so it's like, wait, why is he doing any of this? And I get that he crazy, but, like... What? Yeah. Like, the movie is so bizarre. And this is what I mean when I say, like, it. whenever it feels like the movie doesn't know what to do with a character anymore... They kill them. They kill them. Because, so getting to Richard, here's why I... I the, the ending, where Richard is fine, is so bizarre. Because the way the movie sets itself up, you have Judy, who is, like, really nice and sweet. Like, she's just working at the soup kitchen because she likes helping people. Like, she's from the same social class as Richard. Like, she's this rich Long Island girl, and her mom and Richard and all of her other rich family and friends are like, why do you work there? Helping people? That's stupid. Um, like, Like, Richard literally says, like, that trying to, like, save humanity is ridiculous. Yeah. And shit. Like, why don't you just be a lazy rich person? Fuck. Like, he's... I don't understand if we're supposed to like Richard because he's positioned when we first meet him as if he's going to be the, like, romantic protagonist. But he's this massive asshole because he doesn't want his wife to work. A. B. Doesn't want her working in a soup kitchen. C. Doesn't understand why anyone would ever help anyone. And then, like, he's taking psychology and he seems to just be an idiot at that, too, because he's... His initial idea for his term paper is going to be, what does a man think as he dies? And then Lugosi's like, that's a terrible idea. So he changes his term paper to, I'm going to 
figure out the psychology of the underprivileged, but that's just so that he can, like, go and spy on his girlfriend, basically, at the soup kitchen, at, because he suspects she's having an affair with the dude who runs it, because the only reason anyone would want to work at a soup kitchen is if they're fucking their boss. They're, like, 60-year-old Hungarian boss. And then, like, he gets down there, recognizes Legosi. The best scene in the movie, or... To put it another way, perhaps the only good scene in the movie is when Lugosi's like, oh, yes, you know, it is me, the professor. You caught me. I'm doing this for research. Let me show you some cool stuff. And, like, takes him down to the basement. And he's got, like, Frankie Mills there. And he's like, now we're going to answer your research topic. What does a man think as he's dying? And then has Frankie Mills shoot and kill Richard. And that was cool because, like, I thought he was supposed to be the romantic protagonist. Like, minutes before Sarah and I were talking about, like, oh, yeah, he's probably going to go through an arc where, like, he becomes more likable. Like, where he learns a lesson and becomes more likable. And instead, the movie just kills him. Yeah. And it was like, holy shit. But then you have this whole other plot line with Crawford, who's this, like, L.A. noir-ass, like, beat cop who, like, gets his promotion to detective and stuff. And this is really what I mean, like... Every character's storyline in this movie feels like it's this completely separate movie that mm -hmm. this movie keeps cutting back and forth between, especially at the start of the movie. Like, normal movie structure, like, think of, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but, like, think of Star Wars, right? You start with the droids, you follow them down to Tatooine, we get from the droids to Luke, you know, and then from Luke to Obi-Wan, and from Obi-Wan to Han, and then to the Death Star and Leia, and then to fighting the Empire. And, like, by the end of the movie, you have a dozen characters and a lot of shit going on, but you're able to follow it because you started in, like, one place. This movie does the exact opposite. It gives you a million characters at the start, and then, like, whittles it down till you end in one place, which is not a great structure. No. But, like, Crawford's whole thing, once Richard's dead, you're like, oh... Because Crawford's actually the hero because he's investigating all of this. He's going to end up with Judy. That makes sense. But no, Richard's a zombie. Like, <laughs> it's... Yeah. Like, yeah. So, this, is, this movie isn't good. But I think, yeah, you and I came away very differently from it. Because you came away from this movie being, like, just fed up with its nonsense. Yeah. And I came away with it just fascinated. Like, I just want to sit the writer down and be like, what was happening in your head, like, day to day? Like, and he's probably like, I don't know, I pounded it out in an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like, sometimes when you're watching, like, cheap movies with bad plots, you can kind of reverse engineer it. It's like, oh, this is because they only had access to one car. Or, yeah, yeah. you know, this is happening because this actor died halfway through or something, right? With this movie, it's like, why? Why any of this? Um, but yeah, the horror element is just that Doc, through means that are completely unexplained, has the ability to bring people back to life. I will say the scene where Lugosi gets, like, zombie horde deathed was also effective. Yeah, that was neat. And I liked it. But then it was completely undercut by everyone, like, completely no-selling it. Like, yeah. by the cops just being like, well, I guess that's... That take care of Wagner. Yeah, and it's like... You're police officers, and you just saw a crowd of dead people, like, in a trapdoor under a c cemetery in the basement of another trapdoor, tear a man apart. Like, how... Uh, to be fair, 
He doesn't know they're zombies. That's no excuse. <laughs> that makes it worse, maybe, even. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I, I as... choose... All I want to say is I choose to believe that Judy is marrying a zombie. Sure. That's my interpretation. She is marrying zombie Richard. Okay. He's still rich, though. Still rich. How's she going to get that inheritance, though, if he's already dead? He, yeah, that was the, where's the legal? How can you legally marry a dead person? No. So, yeah, since this is not a horror movie, we are not ranking it. We'll be going on the miscellaneous list, and you can see that part of the list on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can also find links to the other episodes we might have mentioned today, like Corpse Vanishes, or, you know, look up some good horror movies at the top of the list, um, and you'll find links to those episodes there. You can also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals or suggestions, questions, hey, you missed this movie, why didn't you cover this, whatever. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can leave us a rating or a review. Um, that really helps out, especially on Apple Podcasts, because it... Algorithms. Yes, exactly. Um, so if you could do that, we'd really appreciate it. Another thing we'd appreciate is just uh, sharing word about the show. If you know anyone you think would really enjoy the show or like listening to it, uh, let them know about us. Uh, and another thing you can do is check out our Patreon. If you head over to patreon.com slash podcast, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At the $5 level, you get access to weekly bonus audio that comes out every Monday, consisting of deleted content from previous episodes. At the $10 level, you get access to horror short fiction uh, that I write for our Patreon feed and doesn't show up anywhere else. And the backlog of content never goes away, uh, so you can always get all the previous bonus audio when you show up at the $5 level. We're hoping one day to hit our $150 goal. Uh, if we hit that goal, we're going to start doing a bonus fifth episode every month uh, that covers horror-adjacent movies. I don't know if we'd even cover this as horror-adjacent, but some no. of the stuff that we would cover as horror-adjacent would be things like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, uh, the Bob Hope version of Cat and the Canary, um, The Man Who Laughs, The Addams Family? The 1999 I... The Mummy! Sure. Um, so head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and become a patron of the night. We would really appreciate it. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are back at 20th Century Fox for the movie that they did as a follow-up to Dr. Renault's Secret. It's, uh, you know, they, that movie was successful enough they've decided to try their hand at horror again. Okay. It's also their Wolfman ripoff. It's The Undying Monster from hmm. 1942. Okay, so more werewolves. Yeah. Neat. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.